This week on Hacker in the Fed, we break down how Equifax was breached. Is Google Authenticator's MFA cloud sync feature responsible for a hack into 27 crypto companies? Google's Threat Analysis Group announces an in-the-wild zero-day exploit chain for iPhones. And the year of the insider threat continues with the arrest of a Department of State IT contractor on espionage charges. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner in Naxo. Come find us at naxo.com. Joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsiker. Hector was a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you doing this week? All right. I'm doing very well. It's been very busy, but uh, I'm okay. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, busy's good. Keeps you out of trouble, so I'm glad to hear you doing that. You Did you travel this week? No, no traveling unless you count from my office desk to my bed. But aside <laughs> from that, uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty cool. I got to say, it's been a lot of reading, a lot of like content creation. I've been writing a lot. I've been kind of building content for... Uh, for like some speaking engagements or just even like um, like training sessions. Like this week, I've picked up uh, three mentees that uh, I'm trying to turn into uh, well-rounded security researchers. So kind of building that out and hopefully uh, it'll, it'll be a fun next few months as we kind of do that. So Yeah, oh, that does sound exciting. Something a little different than your normal pen testing. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm glad. Something different, you know? Yeah, it's always nice to have a career and, and a job where you can sort of do different things. You know, that was really one of the exciting things of the FBI was there are so many different jobs within the FBI. Um, now, I kind of got pigeonholed when I went to New York. So we only handled uh, criminal cyber intrusions. You know, that's the one downside of New York is that you you don't get to have a, a plethora of different violations that you're looking at. Like, you know, some small offices, you know, you can do white collar one day, cyber the next day, terrorism the next day, because they just don't have enough bodies. But, you know, the other side is we really get to dig in and specialize, you know, in cyber cases. Um, so good and bad, but, I, you know, I think I had a good career, so I was happy with that. But but even though now at Naxo, you know, I'm able to see so many different types of cases from, you know, crypto cases to cybersecurity to expert engagements. You know, we're, we're doing a bunch of stuff. So it's, it's, it's good. I like having different varieties of types of cases that we're working on. So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that, this is why kind of like when I when I start my day, I'm looking at different kind of stories, you know, aside from like cybersecurity, I'm looking at like you know, geopolitics and all sorts of things. I, I try to keep it as eclectic as possible. But I do have a question for you. So I know for a fact that probably back in the 80s and 90s, the FBI, the New York office were probably pretty big on the mob, right? That must have been like a big topic for them. And then after like 2001, obviously terrorism became a big, a big um, number one priority. Yeah, number one priority. What do you feel if you were to guesstimate what the New York office is like their priorities now? Is it still terrorism or is it like cyber or? 
it'll always be terrorism protecting people from you know terrorist attacks and that that september 11th never happens again yeah that's right wow i mean even if it let's let's say it wasn't the 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 the, the message is still that i mean sure. that you don't want to change the message on that but yeah it'll always be terrorism and stopping that sort of thing and i think we've done a fairly good job oh yeah no absolutely i mean thank god we haven't had a, a big event like that in, in quite some time so big shout out to uh to all the folks putting in that time and then you know big shout out for the service right yeah all law enforcement military and the uh, intel community so yeah these guys are you know things seem to be working pretty well uh and we're stopping it because it's not like uh terrorism has just stopped um, you know, people still want to hurt us, but we're, we're, we're able to, to get ahead of it. That's right. So what about this week? You got any travels or anything going on this week? Nah, brother. I'm, I'm not, I'm not up to anything. I'm just going to be working and doing pen tests and doing reports and just interacting with folks. I think my, I think, uh, work-wise, it's just going to be that, you know, the usual. You, you mentioned something just a second ago that I wanted to follow up on, um, the, the, your eclectic taste of, of gathering news and all that. I've tried to tell my kids that too. Um, you know, know a little bit about everything, you know, um, like I go through the news, I'll, I'll go to, you know, ESPN to learn about sports. I'll go to the political sites to learn about what's going on in politics. I'll go to TMZ and see what's going on, like in that sort of world, you know, to keep up with things because, you know, you, you have a well-rounded conversation with people. You kind of have to know all the different subjects and what's going on. And so, you know, if with sync getting back together at the VMAs recently, you Wasn't know, that or, crazy? Or, <laughs> yeah, but you want to know about that sort of thing. You know, yeah. it's, you know, it's, you know, you want to know what's in the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world. So gather information, you know, from all different sites, you know, because, uh, you know, not just because, you know, you, you can't trust one site, but to have a, a wide knowledge base of what's going on. And it makes your life so much better to kind of see what's going on in the world and be able to talk to people. Yeah, 100%. I've been in situations where, especially when I was nerded out, man, and I was only talking about, you know, one thing. And then, you know, you go to a party, a family gathering, uh, you, you meet somebody you're on a date. And, you know, you, you realize, wow, all I know is this one thing. And they're they're interested in other things. So, you know, it, it's you're definitely doing yourself a disservice if you just focus on one thing, hyper-focus on one thing. You definitely want to expand upon that. So I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way as well. You know, and I'm glad that you're teaching that to the kids because I've believed in it in a long time. This is why if you were to ask me the most random question about something uh, – you know, more than likely I have an answer for you. <laughs> yeah, especially like a date. You bring up a good point, you know. What, what if you get there and all you know about is sports or computers? Mm -hmm. And that person just said, the first thing they say is, man, I hate sports. I hate computers. Oh, it's over. <sighs> yeah, that date's not going to go so well. Oh, no. No, not at all. But, um, but yeah, no, it's great. We, I mean, we have so much information at our fingertips. And, and this is a point that you brought up, which is you want to corroborate as well. You know, you just don't want to go to one news source and just like absorb whatever they're absorb or whatever they're pushing out because it could be propaganda, it could be biased, it could be one-sided. And that's not the kind of position you want to find yourself in. You know, you want to kind of want to expand a bit. Yeah, it's funny. Some news sources don't even cover certain stories. And, you know, it's it's insane that that's even a thing. Like, you'll talk to people and they'll be like, I never even heard of that. And these are well-read people. Yeah, well, we have a case today, actually. One of the stories we're going to talk about is exactly that. You know, it's, it's a pretty big case to me, I think. But I was surprised that, you know, I heard it in the news for like a minute, and we, now we already moved on from it. So, uh, All right, you're making your point. You're ready to move on from the banter and get into the stories. I hear you. I hear what you're putting down there. You're, you're, you want us to move on with the show. Okay, Hector. No. We'll move on. 
<laughs> I love the banter. Banter's my favorite part of the week. I'll be honest with you. All right. Let's just cut it off here. Thanks, everybody. That's Cheers. It. We're done. <laughs> oh, man. Our first story, Hector, is how Equifax was breached in 2017. That's right. It's a major story. It's one that probably affected everyone listening to the score, especially if you're American, but not necessarily American. There were some folks in the United Kingdom and abroad that were also impacted by this breach. And um, I think that the the researcher and uh, author of this uh, write-up did such a fantastic job because it was concise and went straight to the point. It discussed the issues at hand and how the breach happened uh, without, you know, kind of smashing your skull in with uh, a 500-page white paper. So Yeah, the write-up was great. Like you said, concise, succinct. It was, uh, it was really well done. So for those that don't know about this hack, uh, and, I, and I don't know where you've been if you did, don't know about it, 2007, Equifax, which is a credit reporting bureau, um, a malicious actor exfiltrated uh, over several months uh, PII, or Personal Identif Identifiable Information, for 163 million customers. Uh, yeah, and so it was, it was a big breach. And so, and it was, uh, not to get ahead of the story, but it was on a Saturday night, a security engineer at Equifax was updating an SSL certificate on their network intrusion detection system, and that's when they found out that this hacker had been in the system for quite a bit of time. So... Um, let's, you want to ready to start the story? Yeah, no, this is fun. I mean, look, let's, 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 let's look at the scenario, right? So, so back in 2017, um, in fact, I believe, yeah, I would say the beginning of, of 2017, around March, there was a vulnerability that came out that was disclosed to the, um, to the community, um, called CVE-2017-5638. And it's very specific to, um, a piece of software called Apache Struts. Now, the thing is that, you know, I, I love Apache. Apache as, a, as an organization, they've done a great job at maintaining a bunch of different products um, over the years. They still do. It is an open source, uh, you know, essentially an open source repository of different products and different tools. But also, the cool thing is that, um, you know, these guys are nonprofit. They are funded by a few companies, but at the end of the day, um, they're, they're just doing their best to kind of uh, uh, maintain these products. Now, in the case of Apache Struts and Apache Struts 2, it, is, was, it was an application. It is an application still, actually. Um, it's an open source framework for building Java web applications. For, so for, for any of you that have gone to college and you probably did some sort of computer science program, you probably had to at some point deal with Java. Java is an old programming language. It's very useful. A lot of people love it. They still program it in today. And folks wanted to use Java at some point to kind of create web applications. At some point, uh, Struts was developed as kind of a framework to develop those applications, um, allowing you to, to kind of create an application around a web server and then deploy that and have users access the web server to interact with your web application. Pretty simple so far. Makes sense. Fantastic. Now, here's where it gets kind of iffy, right? So with any open source software, you have researchers looking at the software. You have users using the software, developers, and so on. And eventually, they find vulnerabilities. They find issues. They report it upstream. Sometimes they abuse it, but we're not talking about zero days today. Um, the vulnerability was identified. It was reported. Apache had come up with a patch. And everybody in the community was talking about this. I remember this, Chris. I'm not sure you remember this, but Twitter was like, hey, if you're running Apache, struts, 
please update, upgrade, do what it is you need to do to deal with the problem. And unfortunately, Equifax in this case took some time to patch their systems. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so the CVE or the, what the, the actor mentioned, or the, the common vulnerabilities and exposures report came out and said that the security flaw allowed threat actors to achieve remote code execution on the server by crafting a very specific HTTP header. Um, and so it was a highly critical uh, vulnerability. And like Hector said, they got the patch out quick. So Equifax's response was to they're committed to patching all the affected applications within 48 hours. And then they implemented a detection rule um, within Snort. And Snort was their network intrusion detection system. They also conducted a file system scan to identify all the systems with a vulnerability with a vulnerable version of Apache. And so that scan is where the, the problem started, Hector, because uh, one application fell through the cracks. Uh, their automated consumer uh, interview system. Uh, so it was a legacy system that was built long, long ago um, and that allowed customers to dispute incorrect credit information. So then in May of 2017, the attackers discovered uh, that the system was vulnerable and it allowed them to take control of the web server. So once they got into the system, uh, the attackers dropped web shells to maintain their foothold on the systems. So can you kind of explain what web shells are and hack how hackers use it to maintain access? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Web shells are conceptually as old as, you know, finding and exploiting vulnerabilities in, in web applications, right? Um, the premise is this. I'm going to kind of explain to you what the premise is, and then we'll kind of go into what a web shell looks like. So the premise is, is that if you identify a vulnerability in a web application or in a web server in general, uh, but it's mostly through a web application, and you're able to write files to the file system, then what you would do is write a, um, uh, a script on the file system that's accessible through the website, and then that script should be able to execute depending on how the web server is configured. So I'll give some examples that are you know, pretty broad so that folks that, that have some experience in this, in this space kind of understand what we're talking about here. So if you ever dealt with PHP as a developer or as a user or as a business owner, um, you know that you set up a web server. In this case, would be like a Apache web server. And then you would install like a PHP module or extension. You could do the same with CGI. CGI is another one, common gateway interface. Uh, you can also do that with other languages, right? Now, the thing is, once you add that extension to your web server, your web server, depending on your configuration, will execute any script that ends with a file extension associated to the language. So if you install PHP as an extension and you, you configure the web server to configure any files, uh, rather to execute any files that um, are saved as file.php, right, or, or file name.php, that file will be executed. Um, the code itself will be uh, interpreted by the language that you've added to your web server. So if it's PHP and there's PHP code in the script, and the script is called file.php, then that file becomes executable. It's very similar to you downloading a, a malware, a, a binary that has uh, malicious code inside. Uh, you download it to your computer on your desktop, you execute it, it's the same concept. So now you, you know the premise, you understand what it is. Now here's what it looks like. For an attacker's perspective, if they break into a web server, they're able to write to the file system, They'll, they'll upload a file, and inside the file is basically a bunch of code. In this case, Java. And since Apache Struts is a Java web application framework, uploading a Java web shell basically entails a script with Java code inside that says, hey, 
if you send me a request for this perimeter, and let's say the perimeter is code, then I will execute code and then show you the output. Now, once the attackers were able to abuse, in this case, um, Equifax's uh, Struts in uh, installation, they were able to upload a shell that would take in a perimeter, and that perimeter would then execute code based off of what the, you know, what the attacker wants to execute. And I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I have to say that, again, it's been around for quite some time. And even to this day, whenever you see a web server breach, attackers tend to use a web shell almost immediately as it maintains a foothold on the file system. Did you use web shells when you were back in your hacking days? Absolutely. I use web shells all the time. And would you use more than one or do you just put the one in? No, it all depends, right? In a, a quick hit and run compromise, I would use whatever shell I had. You know, it could be a generic shell. It could be something that was programmed by someone else, right? Um, there were popular shells back in those days, like C99, and, you know, that, that was the name of it. But there's there's literally hundreds of PHP shells you could find on, like, GitHub, for example, and a bunch of Java shells as well. If it was a scenario where I had breached a very sensitive or highly sensitive target, then I would not risk uploading, you know, files to the file system. Instead... I would just modify a script or a file on the file system that already exists and add my code in there and find a way to execute that code and kind of blend in with the environment. So in a scenario where you're looking for new files or, or file creations on a file system, you're probably not going to find what I just did. Now, if you're doing like file system uh, integrity scans and you're storing a database, like using something like, damn, what was that one tool that was really popular back then? There was a couple of tools that helped you like kind of create a fingerprint of all your files. And if you run it every day and if those fingerprints change, then that's an anomaly. That's a potential indicator of compromise, right? Um, Tripwire. There you go. That was a tool back then. I'm not sure if it still exists today. But yeah, I would just modify whatever was there and live off the land, Chris. And so the purpose of these web shells is so you don't have to re-go through the, the vulnerable Apache every time. You don't have to exploit each time to, to do something, right? Absolutely. Because if you go that route, if you just if you don't upload any files, if you don't modify any files, and then you keep the vulnerability as kind of like a front door, which some people do, then what's going to happen is that every time you breach the web server to execute commands, you're basically leaving more and more logs in the file system. And as the attacker, logs are not your friend. This is why we've heard stories of attackers breaking into an environment and sitting on the environment for 90 days, right? Because the assumption is that after 90 days, logs tend to be rotated due to space issues. So now the attackers are in this ACS systems uh, and it, the, um, it relied on the uh, database. They got in there and they found out there wasn't too much PII within that database because only a, a small number of clients used it. Uh, so they continued to search and they eventually found a mounted network file system share on the web server. Um, and the file share contained notes and configurations used by the Equifax engineers. And can you guess what were in those notes? Well, I would assume we're, we're talking about credentials access to servers in terms of a exactly yeah. <laughs> the engineers left the database credentials in all of their notes so now we have lateral movement allowed within the network um, there was no segmentation between the legacy system and that was vulnerable and not updated and the rest of uh, equifax's infrastructure so with the creds they found in the file share um, they were able to connect and execute queries on 48 different databases uh, and they quickly found what, what I'm going to label as the golden ring of this hack. Um, they found a table that contained the PII of 163 million people. Uh, 
So back in your days, you're going through a system. You get in, you put your web shells and you get your back doors and you get all the stuff in there and then you find credentials. And that's pretty exciting, right? Yeah. I mean, you just, you just, you know, you, you kind of succeeded in your mission in a way, right? Well, well, the credentials is that if that was the mission in the system, you know, I think that's pretty exciting, but then you use lateral movement with those, those credentials. And now you find exactly what you're looking for. Can you kind of describe like in your history, um, what's that feeling is like? Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's one of the most exciting things that you can kind of go through. Right. I mean, you're accomplishing a mission. You're succeeding at what you were trying to do, which is, you know, at least in this case, getting access to PII. P- information is power, okay? Um, and if you own the personal information of, you know, half of the United States, then there's a lot of power that you start to absorb off of that or start to, you know, start to inherit because of that. Take out of it what it is. that P- it's, it's, You had a mission and you accomplished it. Your mission was to get into this system and, 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 and get the information you're looking for, whatever it may be. Um, you know, it's just like on my side of it. It's like when you find the bad guy, um, you know, it, it, it's exciting. Um, you know, you, you, you don't see it as a human type thing. You know, you, you want to take that out of it, that you're taking someone's freedom away and all that. But, you know, cause I, I said this once on a 60 minutes interview, uh, and I got some shit for it a little bit. They're like, they were asking me about, um, uh, arresting Ross Albrick. And I said how exciting it was. It, it was exciting. Cause I spent the last, you know, uh, nine months of my life trying to, trying to get to this point. And so while, you know, while it's a human being and I'm taking their freedom away from them, um, you know, it's a sense of accomplishment of, of, of my job. So I, I, I find it the same way, uh, you know, so the closest thing I have to a hacker story is finding the bad guy. Yeah, and I think that's the emphasis, right? That, that's where the emphasis should be, that, that it is an accomplishment. And, you know, just like anything, just like working out or, or just like, you know, um, getting that, that instant gratification when you're doing something that, you, that you're hoping to get the exact result from, and you're getting that. That's like, wow, you got your endorphins, you got adrenaline, you have all these different things happening. And um, yeah, it's a level of excitement. I, I completely understand. I could also see why people were, you know, gave you some shit for it, but maybe, you know, maybe they're missing the point. I think that's what that was. So I, I will say though, at, at that moment in, in, in law enforcement and especially cybercrime, you know, you, you know, I, if you're a street cop, you know, I was a street cop before you see someone do something bad and arrest, it's pretty easy, but even in cybercrime, knocking on your door or finding Ross in the library, there's always a part of you that's like, well, oh, man, I hope I'm right on this. I've collected a lot of facts and put a lot of evidence together, but there is a small chance that this isn't the right person, that somehow I missed something here. Something's going on. Um, is there anything like that during a hack? Like, like, are you worried that uh, you, you, there's a surveillance thing or this is a honeypot or anything like that? Do you get that feeling like, like you do, like, like I did as arresting somebody? I'll be very honest with you, bro. And, and I've, I've mentioned this in the past and maybe in interviews as well. You know, the question I get from folks is like, well, when you broke into like a system, like, was it exciting? I'm like, no, not, not necessarily. I wasn't that excited by it. Maybe, maybe I'm just an oddball, right? But I didn't really get excitement from from like the actual breaches or, or or anything like that. What I got excitement was for, you know, accomplishing the mission, right? Um, for example, going back to back in the days when I was uh, first starting out, that first hack proves the concept to me, to myself. And that was one of the best things I ever experienced. It was a certain euphoria out of that, right? But then once I started hacking into machines casually and normally and, and you know, here and there and every day, it just became like, okay, cool. It is what it is. 
Now, there are certain situations where, you know, where, where I was targeting a specific organization. And the fact that I was able to get in and make my presence known or do exfiltration, I was like, okay, cool. Now, for these guys, if I were to sit down and kind of put myself in their shoes, for the guys that breached into Equifax, I'm sure their excitement was, okay, fantastic. We got in. Cool. Um, Equifax is pretty big, right? So maybe there's some clout in that. But they didn't even really do any clout chasing after they did the breach. They didn't put their names out there. They didn't take credit for it. What they were looking for was information, and that's exactly what they got. And I'm pretty sure they were fist bumping and breakdancing after the fact. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a bunch of nerds. Yeah, yeah. So we get to the point of we find the PII. They find what they're looking for. And I presume this is what they're here looking for. Now we get to exfiltration. We got to get the data out there. Is that just as hard as finding it, or is it harder? It depends. That's a great question. I really like that question because it really depends. So in some scenarios, you break into what it is you're trying to break into. And, you, you know, so far it's a successful mission. But then as you're kind of sleuthing around and investigating your environment, you start to identify a couple of things that could be concerning. For example, maybe there's outbound filtering on a network level. Maybe there's a NDR or um, some sort of network intrusion detection system or... There's something happening that could cause a major trigger and alarm if you start exfiltration. So one of the first steps the attacker is going to do is do some small exfiltration attempts, maybe an outbound reverse shell, maybe make some sort of outbound connection to some sort of service to see if they're able to do it, and just kind of sit back and wait. Well, what's a reverse shell? How does that work? Well, in most cases, a reverse shell works like this. Let's say you're attacking a web application. Now, instead of uploading a web shell where you're sending commands through the web server. Instead, you instruct right from that initial entry, that initial execution, you instruct the web server to instead connect out to you on a transport. It could be a, a plain text communication protocol like Telnet or HTTP. It could be something like uh, maybe a, um, you know, a bash connection, you know, assuming the system is running Linux or Unix, um, a bash connection out to your command and control server where you could run commands from the terminal, right? And so that would be a reverse shell or reverse connection. Now, if you already compromised the internal network, then what you would do is create an outbound connection, pretty much replicating with the scenario I just played out for you. Uh, the difference is you're not doing it to the web server, you're doing it from a terminal now, from a shell that already exists. And for the whole purpose of that is to see, well, is there any restrictions in um, outbound connectivity for different transport protocols, right? And if you, do not, if you do not identify any and you're not seeing any network security tools in the network or you don't have great visibility, then you're taking a risk by exfiltrating everything in one shot. So the attackers at this point are going to start to probe the environment. They're going to see what gets through, what doesn't get through. And depending on what doesn't get through, they can start to identify if there's potential um, filtering taking place, outbound corporate web proxies, um, anything like that of the sort that's going to uh, hamper the exfiltration attempt. Now, let's assume it's a flat network legacy environment with no network protection, no tools blocking anything or filtering anything. Then the attacker at that point would just open up a stream. But here's another problem you run into. What if the network is being monitored by the network engineers, they have something like a Nagios or some other graphing tool that shows them inbound and outbound traffic? A lot of companies do this for the sake of saving money or identifying potential anomalies. In that event, if you start pushing out a gigabit of data per second, then that's going to be an obvious, clear issue. And it seems like in the case of this breach, over a period of, what, seven months, 
the attackers only lifted records for 163 million people, which is a lot, but it doesn't seem like they have the entire data set, which means that they took it a slow approach. So let me ask you, does it, does it matter if you can get all the data out and you think you can get it out at that gigabit speed, who the hell cares if you set off alarms on the way out? I mean, I, I think it's the difference to me is like going into a seven 11 and trying to put, you know, a, bunch of candy bars in your pocket and walking out versus grabbing an entire display bin of them and running out the door, right? Yeah. I mean, you can do that. And I think a lot of attackers do that as well, especially for with ransomware campaigns. Ransomware campaigns are usually hidden. Well, one. you want to announce those. I mean, that you, to, to get paid off, you have to announce that you've, you've done it. Absolutely. So you, yeah, you are going to trigger stuff eventually on your way out, right? But the reality is that if an attacker, it seems like these guys had a mission. That's why I kept kind of putting emphasis on that word, it seems like they wanted to maintain access between the web shells and that slow approach to exfiltration. It seems like they wanted to maintain persistence. They wanted that access because theoretically, if you're owning Equifax for X amount of years, that gives you X amount of years of lookup power to pretty much query any American or anyone that is with, as part of that system um, on demands, which gives you a lot of power. You could, you could theoretically track you know, the president's credit profile as, you know, as they become president prior to become, becoming president and then after leave office. And if you're really after this guy, you would, you would be able to kind of track their lives based off the credit profile. So my, my honest opinion from the whole story and from what I know is that they, this was supposed to be a long-term engagement and it kind of explains why it took them so long to pull that many records and why they probably didn't, you know, have the chance to pull the entire data set at once. So yeah, the exfiltration. So they got the customer data and they divided it into compressed files of 10 megabytes each. Then they placed it on web servers in a publicly accessible directory and they simply exfiltrated those 10 megabyte chunks of data using HTTP requests through wget um, from multiple locations. That was terrible, by the way. So why, why do you say it's terrible? Because it was very noisy. Imagine this, right? So you have a terabyte worth of data. You split it into chunks of 10 megabytes each. And then you use wget as a, uh, to recursively download all of these requests. Every time you download one 10 megabyte file, it's going to generate one log entry into your logging system, whether you have a SIM or you have a centralized logger. Something somewhere is going to log each individual download. So the way they did the exfiltration was absolutely terrible. It's like they, they had the hindsight to, to try to hide their presence but then when it came to exfiltration, their methodology was very old and archaic. Like I wouldn't doubt if this attacker either was more on the novice side, maybe intermediate, um, or they were just an OG. They've been doing it for a long time and they kind of got stuck to that one methodology. Hector and I are extremely happy to partner with Delete Me. Not only is Delete Me a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Delete Me can be found at the domain joindeleteme.com. Again, guys, there's cyber squatters out there that are trying to uh, glom on to Delete Me's great product and trick you guys into going to different domains, but Delete Me is at the domain joindeleteme.com. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because of Delete Me's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me has convinced me to start using the services too. 
We talk about personally identifiable information, or PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personally identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit cards, and even stealing your tax refunds. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete Me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. Then Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you will receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. Then Delete Me scans and deletes your information all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple to remove customers' information from search As results. you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20, that's F-E-D-2-0. So go to joindeleteme.com slash FED, F-E-D, and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and it really helps support our show. Again, Go to joindeleteme.com slash fed, F-E-D, and use code FED20, F-E-D-2-0 for 20% off all consumer plans. What if they sold their access? What if they got in, got to the data, and then they just said, "Well, screw it. I don't care about it. I just wanted to. I wanted to get in. Uh, here, here's access to this this stuff." Well, you bring up a very good point, right? So I read a very good Twitter post by uh, the guys at VX Underground. Uh, we've talked about them before. They've they've always published some really cool stuff, especially when it comes to ransomware, malware, and so on. And there was a very good post here. And I'm going to send you the link to it, actually, uh, Chris, because it's actually a very good read. Uh, they give you their perspective as researchers in that community, their perspective on how ransomware works and why it works and why the actors do what it is that they do. In one sentence here, they say, there is an initial access broker. So this is the guy that breaks into systems like an Equifax and will find a buyer for that access. And uh, in their point here, they say there's an initial access broker who will sell you roughly one million misconfigured VPN connections or access for $1,500. So for a ransomware group, um, if they want to try to monetize that, they would have to log into each misconfigured VPN service, log into the internal network, and try to move laterally and try to compromise whatever they need to compromise so that they could monetize that campaign, right? So you brought up a very good question. Well, what if the, the initial Equifax actor kind of stumbled upon it breached the service, breached the company, got the initial access and said, okay, this is way beyond my scope. I'll just sell it to somebody. And they probably found themselves with a novice or somebody that really had no idea on how to uh, engage some of, such a massive exfiltration. Yeah, I'll add that link to the description of the show, but you're right, you know, using WGET is loud and noisy and, and, and a little bit off. So, but then let's get on to the detection in July of 2017. So like Hector said, um, that initial attack probably happened around in May of 2017 with, or, or earlier because the vulnerability was all the way back to, to March of 17. 76 days after the start of the attack, the Equifax realized that their network intrusion detection system uh, had an expired SSL certificate. 
So that was preventing them from uh, decrypting and monitoring the traffic on their uh, ACIS environment. So that old environment, uh, they realized the SSL certificate had gone bad. So they immediately uploaded uh, a new certificate. This was the engineer sitting around on a Saturday night. Uh, and the security engineer immediately received multiple alerts regarding suspicious requests from IPs coming in from China. So apparently the file system scan identified uh, the systems with the, the vulnerable versions of Apache, um, but had executed an incorrect directory. So it was pointed, pointed at the wrong directory when they scanned the ACIS environment. So several web shells were discovered on these servers. And finally, they discovered that the data had been extracted by the attackers containing the PII and successfully exfiltrated 163 million customers uh, before being stopped. The article goes on, Hector, to tell about the uh, uh, six big mistakes that Equifax made and led to 163 million customers being pwned. Insufficient knowledge of their legacy systems. Uh, do, you, do you think that's uh, that's true, that they uh, they just didn't know what was running on this old machine? Yeah, I mean, that definitely seems to be part of the issue. I know that the big controversy with this story is that, like, I remember it was a whole big argument that maybe the CISO knew that this service was already uh, vulnerable. There was discussions about the patch cycle and when to patch it. Um, and you know, apparently they were like very close to patching these systems, but because of their process or lack of process, it kind of led down this path. So, you know, the author put down insufficient knowledge of the legacy systems. We could simplify that even further by saying that um, probably inefficient access, uh, sorry, asset management policy, right? That that's that's pretty much their big issue. And if you look at the rest of the list here, sorry, they did scan. They did the file system scan. They just pointed at the, at the wrong directory. Yeah. So is that is that the lack of knowledge? Is it pointing at the wrong directory, or is it not knowing that that wasn't part of the scan? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 all of it, right? I mean, regardless of how you want to put it or anybody puts it, it's 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 an asset management issue, right? So. You know, you have 10,000 assets on your internal network. These assets could be devices. Okay. On these devices, you can have an average of two to five services running. Okay. Technically, those could be considered assets as well. When you get an asset management software or framework or tool, what it will do is it will identify the software running on the assets, and then it will look at all the services running on that assets, and then it will do a port scan, do all these different things, and it will create kind of like a, a big map of what your environment looks like. Now, if that doesn't exist on your internal network, then you're not going to know what's running on what. Now, because of that, you're going to end up in scenarios like this where they're doing file system, file system scans, but since they don't know what may be running on that systems, you know, they may miss this exact vulnerability. That's exactly what happened here. Yeah. And so the next one, I completely agree with poor password storage practices. The engineers keeping the passwords within the environment is, uh, you know, there's no excuse for that. Yeah, definitely some oversight. You know, a lot of organizations, especially like older, I would say um, not older, but like legacy environments run by folks that have been doing it for quite some time. They've been there at the same business, at the same, running the same network for 20 years. Um, from their perspective, they've probably never been breached before. And because of that, there's a certain smugness. Like, well, we're not going to get breached. Like the attack would have to get in from the outside. How are they going to do that? We're behind the network intrusion detection system. We're behind an NDR we're behind firewalls. Well, unfortunately, it still happens, right? Um, and so they'll put emphasis on the external security 
um, and then kind of leave the internal as a wide open flat network. We've talked about that so many times, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, no, that goes into the next one, the lack of network segmentation. So big issue with that one. Uh, lack of rigor and patching process. Seems like they kind of missed out. I think that kind of fits into the asset management issue. Um, you know, not knowing what's been patched and what needs to be patched. Uh, and then the lack of host-based intrusion detection systems. So kind of tell the audience how this would have helped them in, in, in this scenario. Yeah, I mean, this is a reference to what I, I kind of brought up a point earlier. I mentioned a product called Tripwire. It's very old. I'm not sure they're around. But there's other products like it. I think Tripwire is around. Um, but there's other tools out there. And their entire purpose, the purpose of this product is to sit on your file system or in some sort of service or process and once a day or, or a couple of times a day, they'll scan through your file system and create a, uh, basically a database. And inside that database, they have all your file names and some sort of fingerprint, usually a proprietary fingerprint. Maybe it's a SHA-256 hash, one-way hash of the file. And so if those files change throughout the day, then the tool is going to tell you that those files have changed. Now, if new files are added to the file system, then the product is also going to find when new files are added to the file system. And yet again, it will be reported because it is an anomaly. Okay. Uh, those systems worked very well for a long time, but now you have other tools, right? You have, uh, you have all sorts of endpoint protection systems and detection systems that can help you kind of deal with uh, a host-based intrusion or at the very least notify you when something's amiss. And so this is this is going to get a warning to the network engineers uh, for the web shells being created and also probably the uh, exfiltration payloads, those 10 megabyte files. Yeah, right. So if you have a host-based intrusion detection system that's looking and monitoring at your file system, when all of a sudden you have 10,000 small files created on your web server, yeah, that's a massive anomaly. That's a massive indicator of compromise. And um, someone somewhere, if uh, assuming the alert system is 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 effective someone somewhere is going to see a notification and they're going to jump into it so and then the, the the last point was the lack of alerting when security tools fail so great one uh, yeah who will guard the guards chris that's what i told charlie rose when i had an interview with him many years ago and he seemed impressed by that quote in fact i got that from uh i forgot which book but who will guard the guards if you put security products on your network and those security products are monitoring the rest of your network, your Active Directory and other services, but they're not monitoring themselves, then how do you know if your security products are doing what they're supposed to be doing? And that's that's what highlights. That's that last point you just brought up. highlights that exact point. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. So, so that was a great story. Thanks for sharing it, Hector. I really enjoyed digging deep into the how a breach happened. And once we find out, you know, it's a shame that it takes, uh, what, six years to find out all these great details. Uh, but uh, but sometimes it takes a little bit of time for litigation to pass. So the next story is Retool blames breach on Google Authenticator MFA Cloud Sync feature. So um, Google Authenticator MFA Cloud Sync was just recently turned on, um, and uh, they're saying that it caused them to be hacked into. So let's let's get, dig into that, Hector. So Retool is a software company that uh, their development platform is used to build uh, business software. Um, and their clients include Amazon, Mercedes-Benz, DoorDash, NBC, uh, and Lyft. Um, so uh, they had accounts of 27 different customers were compromised following a targeted attack with a multi-stage social engineering attack. Um, uh, oddly here, Hector, or I say that facetiously, the hijacked accounts all belong to cryptocurrency industries. Oh, so, 
Okay. So they, they were going after uh, one type of people, one type of company. So all 27 were attacked on crypto. So did you read about this attack? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I made reference to it last week when we were kind of going through different stories. And I think that we had a we had an audience question that asked us. Um, the question was, you know, which attack did you find to be interesting that was out of the box? Remember, I want to give an old, old example and a new example. And the new example goes back to this story. This story is interesting because it, it changes a lot for a lot of people and organizations. In fact, the researcher on Twitter, Florian, um, he, he basically made that exact point. He said, well, based off of this story, and it's not verbatim, but based on this story, now, now companies and the security teams have to also be worried about what their employees are doing with their personal accounts, right? If you are using your own personal phone and that personal phone is in some way, in any way, connected to your business accounts by means of Google Authenticator, right? And you're synchronizing your MFA tokens on the Google backend from your personal account, now you have become a major asset to any attacker that's looking to breach your organization without having to breach your organization, if that makes any sense. Now they just have to attack the people personally, the employees personally. So that's, yeah, that's how this works. So the attackers uh, went after in, employees and used a URL impersonating their internal uh, identification protocol. Um, and they targeted employees uh, um, and they, most of the employees, they, they ignored the phishing text message. Uh, but one employee clicked on it on the embedded phishing link and read, redirected to a fake login with uh, uh, MFA on. Um, and then the attacker deep faked an employee's voice. I'm not really sure. They didn't get any details what that deep fake was. There's AI because we've done stories about AI used to to get people's voices. But um, and then they called the targeted IT member and tricked them into providing an additional MFA code. Um, and so this additional MFA code then allowed the attacker to put on a device that they control onto the target's account. Um, and so now Retool is blaming the success of the hack on the, the new feature in Google Authenticator that allowed users to, to synchronize their 2FA codes with their Google account. So this person was using, now they didn't say it was a personal Google account. They may have been using Google Enterprise um, as part of Retool's email systems. Um, but it's uh, the 2FA was directly connected to their Google account uh, and, and allowed the multiple devices to use the same 2FA. And so Retool doesn't like that. Um, I will say, though, Google came back and said that the, um, the auth codes synced by the Google Authenticator um, doesn't have to be turned on. It can be disabled. So uh, they came back on that. But uh, what are your feelings on this? Well, I think part of the story is true. I think part of the story is bullshit. Uh, pardon me. I don't want to be. I don't want to be controversial today. I, I don't want to be that guy. But I, I'm gonna have to be that guy for a second. The use of AI in social engineering the guy, the the, the target for the, the second token. I don't know, man. That seems kind of iffy to me. It's possible. Don't get me wrong. And there is money involved. Yeah, the the the, the I would say the end victims, the people that were really targeted, were the crypto folks. And there's money in crypto. Well, there is there is reported to be a fifteen million dollar loss from one of those crypto companies. And if I was an organized bad actor, like let's say out of you know North Korea or whatever, and I had the technology and the money to to use AI, sure, I probably would. But come on, man, you know how far fetched that that part of the story is. Now, 
I'll leave it at that, right? I don't want to sit here and say these guys are bullshitting, but here's the reality. The reality is that these sort of attacks happen all the time. Social engineering campaigns. Now, apparently, you know, you have employees um, that that are, are syncing their MFA codes to, you know, to their accounts, their personal accounts, uh, whether it's Google Enterprise or not. It brings up a point that we brought up in the past, which is if you are a business and you want your employees to to fall within your policies, then it would behoove you. It would behoove you rather to get a laptop, a company computer, make sure they use that, a company phone, make sure they use that, and anything that is business related should 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 only happen to the to that phone and to that laptop uh, or work workstation. Um, anything that's personal should be segmented into their own personal workstations, laptops, and phones. Right. Now, some details in this, like, you're right, there's, we don't know whether it was like a Google Enterprise account where this happened at. We're not really sure where, um, you know, if this happened with the guy's personal, you know, Gmail account. But regardless of how you look at it, Gmail accounts are now going to be prime targets, assuming the attackers could actually log in in the first place, for breaches into corporate environments. Because regardless of how we want to put it, regardless of what happened here with Retool, that syncing capability just opened up a whole new attack path for attackers. So I don't know. We, we talked about this before the show. And, and I mean, sort of my approach to this, and, and I don't know if it solved this exact case, but, I, I, you know, there are plenty of, you know, MFA authenticating apps out there. Um, you know, and, and I don't have two different phones, but I do have the ability to use two different apps. Um, you know, I use one authenticator for my personal things and I use a different authenticator for my work things. So they don't really cross streams. Is it the best? I don't know. It seems to work for me and I'd, I'd recommend it, but you know, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, you know, we talk about Google authenticator and Google makes this and, you know, they're saying that they don't promote, um, sync the sync feature and it's not required. Um, the quote for this one for this article is phishing and social engineering risks with legacy authentication technologies like ones based on one-time passwords are why the industry is heavily investing in these FIDO based technologies. Ah. So FIDO, we've been talking about it for yeah. almost a year now, Hector. Yeah. Ha Hacker in the Fed has been pushing it hard. So um, FIDO based technologies and having FIDO here probably would have uh, uh, saved this hack. Yeah, absolutely. It probably would have mitigated it, right? Because now the attacker would have to figure out a way to get the victim to click on the physical security key um, or interact with the victim's personal devices, okay? So it would go from a social engineering attack to an actual breach or compromise, and then it would require an extra step, which is Let's use our magical AI phone call dialer thing, and then let's have them <laughs> click on a button and say, press one if you want to click on your security key, or press two if you want to don't, or you don't want to, right? This is Hector. Please read me your MFA code. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's uh, oh man, I said the but no. Damn, I did it. Yeah, so you know, we want to make sure that as we kind of deal with our security program and policies, we want to make sure that they're consistent across the board. And when we consider authentication and authorization moving forward, we want to look at what's out there, what's effective. Yes, but one-time codes work, right? They, they work fine. But, you know, as we kind of progress as a culture, as a culture, as a society, as, as, a, as a community, you know, we got we to gotta take advantage of what's out there, right? We have pass keys now. Um, we also have uh, the so physical keys, like you said, uh, uh, Chris, with the final keys. 
So again, this, this could have been avoided, but it probably was not expected. And this kind of brings up another point. And I tell this to everyone when I'm, especially when I'm doing a speech and I'm meeting up with folks, I'm having a presentation or a meeting. I ask the audience, I look around the audience, I say, hey, what was the last time you guys sat down for like a tabletop exercise? And the quiet, the room usually goes quiet, completely dead silence, right? Because usually they don't know what I'm talking about. Or two, they feel like a tabletop exercise, for example, is some complex, big thing. And it's not. It could be as simple as me asking Chris, hey, Chris, when's the last time you changed your passwords? Oh, by the way, Chris, if you were to be breached, what's the worst case scenario? If you're breached in your home office, are they, is the attacker going to be able to move laterally across your internal network? Um, are they going to be able to access your wife's devices, right? Those questions are very important in helping identify potential gaps in your internal network. And I, I think that's 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 enough. Me, let me get off the soapbox. Let me just stop. But I, I hope I made some point, good points there. So I don't know, you know, th this tactic that's being used to hack into these companies, you know, we're seeing it all the time here with the social engineering and, uh, you know, you know, yeah. I mean, look at Cisco, Uber, um, you know, MGM, all these have reportedly done through the same tactics. But um, so last week we had a question about uh, MFA and whether you use the same advice for your password management and your uh, your tokens or your one-time passwords. Um, and you and I kind of both agreed to have that separately and we thought it was best, but I, I heard you got into a crazy debate in your personal life about this this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, so this is a good one, right? So I, I did have a, a conversation with someone about that episode and um, they were very uh, adamant that the responses that I gave, and you know, Chris is always right, so they always leave Chris out of that when they have a complaint. The response that I gave was, yes, I'm for segmentation, but it really depends. And they felt that the really depends part was not necessary. They felt that what I should have said was, by no means should you ever keep, especially using like a password manager, would you keep the password plus the MFA token generator code within the same, you know, uh, um, password manager, Right. And so, again, Chris, you and I pretty much agreed that, yes, yeah, segmentation is legitimate. You, that's, that, that should be your goal. But it was that, well, but it depends that that upset this person. And I want to give him a big shout out because, you know, in, in a way they're right, right? I'm, we're always talking about segmentation. I'm big on segmentation. I would never have uh, an account and an MFA code in, uh, in one password manager unless it had no significant or posed no, it's no significant risk to me. Right. If it was like a some, you know, a, a sports betting site. Right. Um, and the login is there having a password manager. They both you know, have the MFA code in there as well. I don't really care. What's the worst you're going to do? You're going to spend my hundred bucks to, to bet on a bad game. You know, so I, I look They're at going to bet on your, your jets. Oh, you're man. Gonna, no. You're going to look silly for why, betting on the jets. Why would you? Why <laughs> would you bring that up? Why would you bring that up? I was I was hoping the jets would win last night, by the way. And we're refer by the way, we're referring to the Jets versus Patriots game of this week here in the NFL. But anyways, thank you for bringing that up and making me depressed again. So appreciate you, Chris. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, segmentation is the way to go. And if you can segment, um, you know, definitely do it when you can. And if you feel like the the service or or account is doesn't pose any risk to you, again, it comes down to your risk appetite. So be very mindful of that. And big shout out to the person that reached out to me. And, and was so adamant about that because it was a great conversation. So, Hector, on to the next story. Uh, zero day exploited by a commercial surveillance vendor in Egypt. So, 
Google Threat Analysis Group, or uh, TAG, uh, we've, we've talked about them before, then partnership with Citizen Lab, um, they found an in-the-wild zero-day exploit chain for iPhones. Um, it was developed by a commercial surveillance vendor, um, Intellexa. Is a, I'm not sure that that's how it's pronounced. So. Uh, but the exploit chain is used to install the Predator software, um, and that Apple has already patched it um, for iOS uh, 16.7 and 17.0.1. Um, but this was uh, delivered via a man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, I'm always going to call it a man in the middle attack, not an attacker in the middle. Oh, adversary uh, in the middle. That's what they call it. Adversary in the middle. Yeah. So this is a man in the middle attack. Um, so if the target was going to a website using uh, HTTP, uh, then the attacker can intercept the traffic and send fake data back to the target uh, to force them to a different website um, versus when you go to a website and it's HTTPS, which means that the, uh, the traffic is encrypted and you can verify using a certificate that you're going to the right site and getting the right data back. Do you know of websites that still use it, just HTTP? Unfortunately, many do. There are really? millions upon millions upon millions of websites that still have HTTP enabled. What they try to do, what a lot of these companies try to do is they try to still provide a service for old legacy users. And I think that we're, we're about to hit that time in history where it's time to uh, to kind of move away from that mindset. So so here's what I'm talking about. Wow, wow it's funny. I asked you that question, and then I, I Googled it, and the list of sites that still use HTTP is insane. Yeah, because the idea is that someone somewhere around the world, whether it's in rural you know, Idaho or in the middle of India or in a small town in, 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 in you know, Ireland, right, they probably have an old computer running an old operating system that does not have a browser which has the latest security tools, including, in some cases, HTTPS, or they have outdated SSL libraries, or there's some other reason why going to HTTPS site would be an inconvenient for them. So a lot of companies still run HTTP, and when they can redirect to HTTPS, they can, but if they identify an old browser or old environment, then they'll just process your request through plain text, Okay. And so there are tons and tons of websites that allow this. And because of this, you have a lot of potential victims that are going to be attacked by vulnerabilities like this, where you have man in the middle or adversary in the middle attack uh, attack paths um, that could be leveraged using this uh, this oversight. And it's it's quite terrible. And I, in my, you know, in my personal opinion, I would just disable ACDP outright. And for those folks out there that are still running legacy environments. Unfortunately, at some point, they're going to have to upgrade. Yeah. So, I mean, it said this, you know, the article, it didn't say it was affected Safari only. But again, this came from TAG or, you know, Google's threat analysis group. And they said that uh, it didn't affect Chrome because uh, Chrome has an HTTPS first mode, um, which uh, it, it tries to throw all traffic through HTTPS to authenticate. Um, and then if it doesn't, uh, it throws up a warning and says, hey, you're going to a place that's not a secure setting. We can't verify it, the, you know, the certificate. And so it kind of stops it. So, um, you know, good on Google for releasing this information pretty fast. Uh, good on Google for having a browser that sort of tried to mitigate it before it was even a problem um, and try to protect against man-in-the-middle attacks. Um, so uh, I think they, they said in the article they're going to do a full write-up once uh, they know that the all aspects of this is uh, are, are patched um so it'll be good to watch yeah but you know i also want to point out here's how i found this story aside from it being on twitter and i you know i passed through it 
there was somebody a research. I wish I remember, I wish I had the original link, um, and I'm sure I'll find. If I do find out, I'll send it your way, Chris. But it was a researcher that kind of went down the rabbit hole because yes, there were issues in iOS for sure um, and Safari. Okay, and it was a, a local privilege escalation vulnerability as well. So there's three vulnerabilities that that um, Apple had to deal with in order to resolve this issue, this 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 vector um, or vulnerability class or vulnerability in general. But the guy that went down the rabbit hole also discovered that Chrome had to also deal with a vulnerability and patch a vulnerability as well. If you look at that section in the write-up, Chris, you see where it says Android exploit chain? Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. So there were at least two different ways to to kind of exploit this issue in uh, iOS. Um, And, of course, Android here later on, uh, which was the man-in-the-middle injection. And then uh, an initial renderer of basically a browser of, of sorry a browser rendering exploit, um, which could be labeled as or has been labeled as CV twenty twenty three forty seven sixty two. I'm not sure if this is the exact one I'm referring to uh, in that original article, but what I found interesting is that you know I'm glad that these organizations Apple and Microsoft are communicating with each other. Um, not only are they communicating with each other, but they're kind of dealing with this together, right? Um, there was, there, as you can see in this article, there's nowhere in this article, uh, Chris, where Google's admonishing Apple or the iOS security team, right? This is a, a kind of a breakdown as to what happens with that, um, you know, that uh, that issue out in Egypt, um, or that incident rather. What kind of vulnerability was exploited? What kind of vulnerability class are we talking about? Um, how it happens? Here's the CVEs. Here's the research you can look at. Um, and then, of course, how it also may have affected Android users as well, right? So, you know, very interesting stuff. Good write-up, and um, you know, I'm, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing more like this. Yeah, I mean, I think beyond even just admonishing Apple, I think the the other way. I mean, uh, the article says this quick patching from Apple helps to better protect users, uh, and we encourage all iOS users to install them as soon as possible. I mean, the the you know they could have put down Apple and not say the quick patching from Apple helped protect users. So you know they're kind of you know promoting Apple is out there protecting their That's users. What's up. So, so shout out to shout out to Google, shout out to Apple for both moving quick. Yeah, these tag stories, I mean, they're almost coming to a weekly thing, these guys finding a new vulnerability and, and getting the information out there quickly. So, uh, yeah, big shout out to them. So, Hector, I knew it was going to happen. Uh-oh. Um, every week you'd love to let me know that the year of the insider continues. Um, and it certainly continued with a uh, Department of State IT contractor was arrested on espionage charges this week. So a federal IT contractor working for the State Department and the Justice Department was arrested on espionage charges. Um, he'd been working as a help desk technician with the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research since at least 2021, uh, and as a contract management analyst in the Department of Justice since uh, May 2022. Well, good on him for having two jobs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was he was, uh, he was a high achiever for sure. Yeah. Sorry. But when is the United States of America going to learn? that bringing in outside federal contractors into these highly sensitive environments is not a good idea. When are they going to reach that point, Chris? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so this guy had a top-secret clearance uh, since 2020 and been working with the government agencies since uh, July of 2019. I don't know how he got an outside, you know, if if he had lived it here since he was at least 18, uh, maybe doing a background check is fine, but 
I don't think, I mean, a top secret clearance requires, you know, going all the way back to where you've lived since you're 18 and interviewing the neighbors. Um, so I don't know. This guy is allegedly sharing national defense information with a foreign government. He was 50 um, and he accessed secret and top secret information unlawfully and distributed that information to an unspecified African country. Allegedly, he was a naturalized U.S. citizen with that was previously a citizen. Oh, so it was passing. He was a citizen of uh, the African country. Um, and we don't know what African country, but just he is a descendant from Ethiopia. Uh, those two things are not connected. Um, these are just two different facts. And he was arrested on charges of gathering or delivering uh, and conspiracy to gather and deliver defense information to the aid of a foreign government, the unauthorized possession of defense information, and the willingness uh, to retain it. So um, allegedly he searched classified portals to access non-Department uh, of State intelligence reports without a need to know the classified information. Um, copy and pasted the information from at least 85 reports, um, and the majority of which uh, were about the undisclosed African country. Uh, printed and downloaded a secret and top secret information from the reports. Now, this guy works in IT. IT. He doesn't think that downloading and printing and copying and pasting leaves a record. Of course. Well, obviously not. Obviously not. That's a, that seems a little foolish to me. Here's the reality, right? There's a couple issues with this story. The first one is obviously, yeah, the guy came here, became naturalized, um, you know, had a great opportunity to, you know, to, to kind of build a great life. He, he got a secret clearance. Um, you know, he, he worked at some really great places. And uh, obviously his, his loyalty and his interests were elsewhere. You know, we don't really know his story. I can't I can't speak for him. I can't even judge him. But the reality is, is that a lot of what happened here could have been mitigated. I've said it for a long time. Even even back then when I was the bad guy, a lot of people ask me, so why were you involved with like, you know, why would you attack? Well, OK, when you were the bad guy, why were you attacking federal contractors and security companies? Well, the security companies is a whole different conversation for another day. But the reason why I spent a lot of time attacking federal contractors it's because the federal contract, federal contractors, at least in this country, I can't speak for all of them. There are many good ones, right? So please don't take this general. If you're a federal contractor, don't get offense to this. Or don't take offense to this, please. But there's a lot of federal contractors out here that are fleecing this country. And they're fleecing a tax, a tax dollars. And uh, this is a great example of someone that shouldn't have had access, shouldn't have had access to, to sensitive uh, information, having sensitive information. And there's, there's probably a lot of reasons why this happened. And I think that someone somewhere should start looking at the internal policies and say, look, it's okay for us to bring federal contractors externally, maybe some external work, maybe research and development. But something like this, it's a repeat of history. I'm not going to repeat what the history is because you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, this, is, this is a repeat of history, and we're just going to keep on doing this. And for, you, for all these members out there that are not American, I would love to know. Please, please jump in and help me out. How does your government deal with federal contractors or outside contractors in your home countries? And have you guys had incidents, assuming that you're, you know, you guys are, are aligned with the United States government here, uh, or rather your government is, uh, have you guys had incidents of, of something similar in nature? Meaning, have you had a federal contractor breach your national security uh, for the purpose of espionage um, in the same way as this gentleman did, allegedly? Okay. I would love to hear about it. Because when I when I hear these stories, it's usually here in the United States, and we're hiring outsiders, uh, outside contractors to come in. We give them full carte blanche access, and uh, and then we're surprised, right? You know the Pokemon emoji face. We're surprised when when 
it turns out the guy or the person is stealing information. Like it's really bugged out. Oh, and by the way, Chris, going back to one, the, the last point you made about, well, this guy's in IT. Doesn't he realize that as he's opening and, and creating files and copying and pasting, he's not leaving events? Maybe he thought they weren't sophisticated enough. Maybe what he saw from his perspective as the IT guy is, well, these guys are not even logging, so it doesn't even matter, right? The truth of the matter is, is this. A lot of organizations invest a lot of money into data loss prevention or DLP and similar technologies. And I've seen some really great tools lately that help organizations deal with this exact problem. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these tools being deployed to kind of help mitigate some of these uh, uh, exfiltration attempts. So this reading this article and at the end, um, it made me think about that hacker that we had shared uh, questions. He had written in questions and we sort of went back and forth with a few weeks ago. Um, how he said, you know, oh, how am I ever going to get caught or what? nothing's ever going to happen to me, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, so this guy was found out and charged with espionage, one of the highest crimes, the highest crime in our country, um, during an internal security review. And this review was in response to the arrest of the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman who disclosed classified information. So because this guy months ago had you know disclosed on his discord and we cover the story here on hacker and the fed um he disclosed you know national security information they did a review and that review turned up this guy who now has been charged so you know i'm sure there's probably a couple other guys sweating bullets about what they've done in these networks and what's coming their way but guys you're gonna get caught it's not freaking worth it definitely not worth it and um that was some great advice chris you know I, I, okay, so one of the reasons why I love doing the podcast with you, aside from just spending time with you, Chris, every week, is being able to drive that point home. At least for me, as someone that went through all this nonsense, not this nonsense, but other similar nonsense, you know, I hope that I can drill it in at least one person's head that it's not necessary or needed to be the bad guy, especially now when it comes to this stuff. Because you're going to destroy your life. It's going to follow you for the rest of your life. It took me years to build trust within the community or build trust with my customers. And if I would have never been able to do that, um, I would probably be doing something else. I'd be a mechanic somewhere or building birdhouses or something. Um, and I, I, let me tell you right now, I'm terrible at mechanics and uh, building anything. So I probably would not be a great at it's been a pleasure, my friend. Cheers. There are a lot of rules behind bird, building birdhouses. I've recently found really? out. Really? Yes. There's like a certain hole size, and whether you put a certain peg outside the box or not, uh, especially for bluebirds. Uh, my mother-in-law wants me to build her a bluebird box, uh, and and it has to be hung at a certain height for a bluebird. There's a lot of rules to bird, build birding, uh, building bird boxes. Building bird boxes. That's tough to say. <laughs> it's like uh, building back better or whatever that was. <laughs> yeah. You know, see, see, I would have failed, right? Because I didn't know that, Chris. I would have just went outside with some piece of wood, a couple of pieces of wood, uh, a freaking hammer, some screws or some nails. I would have You would have dead birds everywhere. Yeah, it'll be it'll be like I'll, I'll get raided by FEMA and whatever. <laughs> you know, I'll, 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 be, I'll be locked up for freaking uh, crimes against, you know, birdatity. <laughs> but but all jokes aside, ladies and gents, don't do what this guy did. It's not worth it. Your life is done, and it's going to follow you. It's going to follow your family for the rest of your lives. And I I, I hope that, um, you know. Oh, this guy's going to prison for a long time. Well, oh, yeah, he is. Well, you did bring him uh, you, you brought something up. You said that espionage is, like, one of the highest crimes. 
Is there anything higher? Like, isn't treason higher, or is it the same as espionage? Treason's the highest. Treason's okay. the only one in the Constitution. It's the only law written in the Constitution. Ah, okay. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's not good. So, I, I doubt they. Uh, I doubt they're going to have a prisoner swap for this guy. So, uh, we'll see what happens, and we'll, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll keep our eye on it. So. Hector, those are great stories. I enjoyed speaking with you about them. Uh, listener questions. Yes. Uh, quite, reach out to us at questions at Hacker and the Fed. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some next week to go through. We'd love to hear your questions. Email us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. If you want Hacker and the Fed merchandise and you want to support the show, go to hackerinthefed.com. Get your Hacker and the Fed merchandise, hoodies, T-shirts, custom orders. We ship internationally. Um, really does support the show, guys. We're trying to keep the show alive for as long as possible. Um, and so we, we really need to get some some support here. Um, be great. New episodes every Thursday. Download, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Hector, I've certainly enjoyed having our conversation. I know you know this, but I'll let the audience know this. So we're recording this on a Monday. The podcast comes out Thursday. Um, because of some travel coming up, I have to record the next episode of the podcast on Thursday. So, Hector, I look forward to talking to you in just a few more days to record the next episode. All right. I get you twice in one week. Amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Super excited. So, great episode, Hector. I enjoyed it. Um, talk to you in a few days. It's been a pleasure, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.